You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. We're currently in a teaching series called Ask Anything. Each of us carry questions, doubts, and uncertainty that emerge from the current culture and from living in a broken world. In this series, we are looking at what God's Word says about some of the questions we face as followers of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning, church. It's good to see you and uh, welcome to our campuses that are joining us right now in Crystal Lake and Elgin and the North Shore. We love you guys and um, uh, I hope that you've been having a great summer. Slammed probably right now with going back to school and the busyness of this season, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, isn't it? Amen. If you're new, my name is Tommy Kreitz. I serve as the campus pastor of our Crystal Lake Church and also on our teaching team. And it is a pleasure to be with you guys today, bringing God's word. And we're gonna jump right into it. Is that all right with you? Is that good? Okay. We are going through a series called Ask Anything. And uh, we've been going through this over the summer and we have asked you to ask us some of the questions that you might have about life and the Bible and culture. And we've been taking those questions and we've been taking the most frequently asked questions and doing sermons on them throughout the summer. And so today is no different than that. We're gonna be doing that this morning, uh, but we're going to be doing that with the, probably the most asked question that we received, and that question is on gender identity. So the title of the message is Identity Crisis, Identity Crisis. This is a topic that is near uh, to my heart. I've had hundreds of discussions over the past decade with students who've been struggling in this area. I've spoken uh, with a former student who transitioned completely to the opposite gender. I've had former students go off to college and come back and identify as non-binary. I have seen many embrace and affirm this ideology. So it is a topic that is very near to my heart. So what I wanna do is I wanna start off with some statistics, just to kind of bring us all up to speed on what it is exactly that we're talking about and give us a little bit of of, of more information. And so here's some stats. Um, Roughly 1.6% of American adults identify as transgender or non-binary. I wanna maybe give you some definitions for that right there. Transgender is being a person who Who's, uh, who feels as if their gender identity does not match uh, the one they were given at birth. And non-binary is a person who feels that their gender identity is neither male or female. So roughly 1.6% of American adults identify as trans or non-binary. The percentage in young people is actually much higher. It's um, 5% between the ages of 13 and 29. And that is 2% who identify as trans, 3% as non-binary. To give us maybe another number for that, that's 1 in 20, 13 through 29-year-olds. Another study uh, measured how many adult Americans knew a trans or non-binary person. 44% said they they knew a a trans person. 20% said they knew someone who was non-binary. Of those uh, trans people, 27% of, of adults said that the trans person was a friend, 13% a coworker, 10% a family member, and 9% said that that person was younger than 18. So just to give us a little statistics and numbers to kind of place around this topic that we're talking about, because I would imagine probably in our church, 
You've heard of this. Have you heard of it? Have you heard this topic going around? What we also find is that we have seen a 400% increase in news coverage about this ideology. And that is not even including uh, and accounting for the rise of this topic in social media, which is widespread. Hundreds of bills uh, on this subject, both for and against, have been drafted to try and become law. Policies in schools across the country have been put in place affirming this ideology. Needless to say, it has become a hot-button issue in our culture. You agree? Hot-button issue. So what is the Christian to do? How do we think about this? How do we engage with this as Christians? What is the solution to this, if any, at all? What, what do we do? How do we live in this world? So here's where we start. It's where we always start, church. We set the foundation. We set the foundation. As a Christian, our first move is to see what God's word tells us about this area. And no matter what the cultural issue or whatever the question is, we always start here because we can feel a lot of ways and we can think a lot of ways. And, and, and to be honest, the way that I feel and think about this doesn't really matter that much. But what really matters is what God's word has to say about this in our life. So what does God's word tell us? Does God's word speak specifically to it? And if not, are there principles in God's word that we can grab that can help us navigate through this issue? So let's look at it together. We're gonna start in uh, the best place that we can in the beginning, Genesis 1. You're gonna need your Bible, open it up. First chapter, Genesis 1. We're gonna be in verse 26. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the, creature, all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to point us to, to two really important truths in Genesis 1 that we need to grab a hold of. Those two truths, uh, the first one is that God assigns value to mankind. He assigns value to mankind. Do you see it? Do you see it here in Genesis 1? God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created man. Rapid repetition. God is trying to grab our attention with this so that we understand this truth that we have been made in the image of God. He has given us an identity as image bearers of God, the creator. And what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it means that we have been given minds to think and emotions to feel, to feel and wills to make decision and an inner spiritual nature that enables us to know and worship God. Listen, animals and trees don't get that. We do. 
Because God made us uniquely in creation and he put his image on us and we are image bearers of the creator. And so we have value because we are made in God's image. It is what determines our value. God, because he created you. You are not an accident. We are not a product of of nature. You have been fashioned by God. Psalms 139 uh, tells us that that you and I were fearfully and wonderfully made. So God assigns value. The second thing uh, that we see is that God gives us identity. We saw the first one that he made us in, in, in his image. Then he gets specific. He made us male and female. He created us male and female. Specific identities that God, the creator, gave his creature for us to live in. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was very good. Making man in his own image after his likeness and creating them male and female, it was very, very good. This is God's divine design. And it is a beautiful design and it is very good. Problem is, is that when we depart from God's divine design, when we say that what God made isn't good or isn't good enough for me, real pain starts to happen. In fact, that's what we see two chapters later in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind. Mankind was deceived by the serpent and he departed from God's design and sinned against God and as a result, it fractured our world and it has never been the same since. And so it is no wonder that we have an identity problem because sin and corruption, when it entered into the, room, into the world through sin, it seeks to always destroy the design of God. The original design of God, it seeks to deceive, it seeks to distort, it seeks to destroy that design. So no wonder we have an identity problem in our world and have always had an identity problem in our world. But when the world looks at a passage like this, they have some objections. Uh, what they would say and what they do say about this passage is Genesis 1:27, God created them male and female. Well, that's not talking about gender. That, that's talking about biological sex. Now, I think that you could stay in Genesis 1:27 and argue uh, that no, uh, I think you can argue it till the, till the cows come home, that no, that this was God's original intended design that he created mankind, male and female, and he intended them to live in the identities that he created for them. So I think you can, I think you can argue that from Genesis 1, but let's take a look at uh, other verses in scripture and see the consistency of scripture and action. In fact, one of the other places that we see this consistency is through the sexual ethic that God gives man and woman. In Romans 1, 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations, these are important words, for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Man committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty 
for their error. Do you see it? Male and female. In the sexual ethic, there is a consistent gendered behavior with the identity that God has placed on them in creation. It is consistent. Deuteronomy 22.5, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This word, by the way, isn't some raising up of this sin to some pedestal level. Um, it, is, it is a word for, uh, for sin. There's a lot of abominations in the Old Testament and the Mosaic law. We shouldn't get hyper fixated on that. But do you see again, consistent with the creation identity, consistent gendered behavior with the identity God has placed in creation. And so hopefully this is, this is helpful and clear on, on the matter. I think it's very clear on what God says about sex and gender. The identities that he has created us in. But what about the ideology that exists around this conversation? What about the ideology, right? You heard this phrase before, I must, I must do everything to be my true self. It's a phrase you've probably heard. Do you not want me to be true to myself? Do you not want me to find my true self? Do you not want me to live out my authentic self? That sounds really nice, right? Yeah, like live out your self, like be true to yourself. But what does God's word have to say about that? In fact, what does Jesus have to say about that specifically? Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' call to all people is to deny themselves and come after him. Not to live out our true self, but to deny ourselves and follow him. Why? Because our true self is not found in a self-identity in the world. It is only found in Christ. I just want to take a moment. And I have to believe that in a church our size, that there are some maybe in this room who are listening right now, who are struggling with identity. Struggling with gender identity. Can I just tell you that God loves you? That when we're talking about creation and we see that we are image bearers of God, that's not just people in our church, that is people everywhere. Every person has been made in the image of God. And you have value and you are loved by God, and you are welcome here, and Jesus loves you. God loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you so that you don't need to find your identity in the world, in the confusing world, but you can find your identity in him. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so here's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves at, at odds with culture. Uh, Kevin DeYoung actually puts this really well. He calls it the hard and simple. 
And he talks about culture and he talks about Christianity and Christians. For culture, it is hard to identify identity because identity is um, up infinitely up to the individual. It is whatever the individual seeks to identify as. And so there is no way to truly pinpoint an identity or identifier for identity because it is always changing based on different experiences and different people and different self-identifications. And so it is hard to identify identity for culture, but it is simple to relate. Affirmation only, right? Celebrate self-identity. Love actually equals celebration and affirmation of my self-identity. So hard to identify identity, simple to relate. And then there's where we find ourselves. We are opposite of this. We actually find it simple to identify identity. Male and female, this is what God's word says, and it is consistent all the way throughout. It makes no variance. There is no continuum in God's word. It is male and female lived out in those identities. And so it is simple for us, but it is very hard to relate. Knowing exactly how to encourage someone to see the world and themselves rightly, how precisely does speaking truth and love proceed from that? So we set the foundation. Let's go after that hard part. How do we relate? How do we engage? Here's the second thing. Engage practically. Engage practically. In fact, most of the questions that we received on this topic were questions like this. How do we engage? What is the Christian ethic? How do we act as Christians in this area with other people? What what does that look like? And so first what I want to do is I want to bring us to Scripture and to see an example of engaging in culture and some principles that we can put into practice. And then I want to bring us to some specific cultural problems, okay? So we're going to be in Acts 17, 22 through 34. Acts 17, 22 through 34. And what we're going to see here is is Paul. And uh, Paul is speaking to the people of the culture. All right, he's brought onto this, uh, this hill called Mars Hill, and he's brought into this place called the Areopagus. And in this place are um, the, the, the leaders of culture, philosophers and judges and deep thinkers and influential people of the day. And they are gathered together to listen and debate and to bring new ideas together to discuss. And so what we see in Acts 17 is actually Paul is going to use a framework that some have called Yes, yet, so. If you're taking notes, write that down. Yes, yet, so. He uses this framework as he talks to these people, and we're going to see it right here. Acts 17, 22 through 34. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is, Paul, this is Paul's yes. This is an affirmation of, a positive affirmation of something true of the men of Athens. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul is affirming the men of Athens. I see that you are religious. You're searching. In fact, you're so religious and searching so much that you have even placed an altar to an unknown God just in case 
you left any out. You didn't want to leave any, any gods out, so you put this one here. So this is Paul affirming, bringing yes to, then he moves into the yet. Now this is the truth statement. Affirmation, true affirmation, then into the truth statement. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, here comes the truth, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. That is Paul's yet. I see the positive affirmation that you are religious and searching. Let me bring some truth to that searching. Because your searching has come up short. So let me bring some truth. And it is about the God who has made everything who is not far but is actually near to each one of us in whom we live and move and have our being. Then he moves to the so. So yes, yet so. Because of that truth, here's what we need to change in our minds. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's this man? That's Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him. Who's this him? That's Jesus from the dead. Yes, yet so. He brings Jesus in. This is what we need to change. We need to, because of the truth, we need to repent because a day of righteous judgment is coming, but we have assurance in Jesus who was raised from the dead. We actually find out the result of this argument that Paul makes. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's relatable, Paul. (laughs) But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we see three results from Paul's time at Mars Hill. Some mocked, some were interested, we'll see you again on this matter, and some were saved. Now there is no power in the framework that Paul is using here. But I think that his framework is helpful. I think it is helpful in in helping us bring the gospel to our culture as Paul is bringing the gospel to the culture that he is in. We actually received a question too about how can I navigate this issue of gender identity and come out the other side unscathed? Uh, You don't, um, right? (laughs) Neither does Paul, right? And and he is, uh, yes, yet so, he's still mocked. 
So we don't come out on the other side unscathed, but hopefully this framework is helpful to us to start having a conversation with people. And listen, you might be mocked, but people might be interested to hear more of what you have to say. And maybe some would even come to salvation. And in this framework that Paul is kind of speaking, and I think we're, we're better at the yet and the so, the, the truth statements, although I would love to see more truth in love. Um, I think we can improve in that area. But I think that the part that we really struggle with in this framework is the yes part, the, the affirmation, the positive affirmation. How do we affirm like Paul affirms? Some Christians have, have, have tried to do this um, with pronouns. Have you heard uh, maybe some of these arguments about using preferred pronouns? Um, these are, uh, there's two sides in this debate in Christianity. And I want to say uh, there are men and women on both sides of this debate uh, who are um, wonderful men and women of God, okay? And so I'm not uh, showing you these to bind your conscience to any one of them. I just want to bring them to you. Uh, one of the sides is pronoun hospitality. And this is the um, argument that we should use uh, people's preferred prom- pronouns, what they choose and want to, to be called in their pronouns. And this side would argue that, um, that they are meeting the person where they're at. That language, because it's a shared space, that there, there, there isn't a problem in, in doing this. And what it is, is it's showing charitability and, and respect. Even though there's disagreement on this matter, there's a, there's a respect that is given there and meeting them where they're at. And they use Paul as an uh, as a, a, as a, uh, authority on this to be all things to all people. And so they... Um, use the preferred pronouns. Then you have the other side, which is against the pronoun hospitality, and, and they believe that you should not do this. That, in fact, using those preferred pronouns is lying to them. It's not being truthful to them, and, and therefore it would be sin for me to, 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 to use those because they're not true, and I'm lying to you, and, and how does that then bring someone to Christ and and so they don't use that, but we've seen some compromise there too of maybe using the name instead of the pronouns, right? It, it is a large debate. Have you heard this debate? Listen, this is not new. It might seem new. It's new names, but this is a debate that's been happening for decades, decades and decades and decades, because this debate is about the contextualization of the gospel to culture. How much of culture or other religions do we allow to influence the way that we preach the gospel or to live out the life in, uh, of the church? How much do we adapt to the culture? And the reason that it's a long debate spanning decades is because it's a really good question. Because we do contextualize the gospel to our culture. But the question is how far do we take that? And it's a really good question. And there are great Christian men and women on both sides of this debate. Um, I will say, I think that what Paul is doing here in Acts 17 and pronoun hospitality are different. Um, Paul is affirming something that is true of the men of Athens. He is saying, um, I perceive that you are very religious. That's true. They are. 
Now, it's, it's, it's not in the, the correct direction, right? It is, it is not in the best way that they are religious, but they, they, they indeed are very religious. And Paul uses that searching and that seeking as a way to present the good news of Jesus Christ to them. And so I think that we should follow Paul's way um, in, in, in affirming uh, in people what is true, right? So let me give you an example of this. Uh, um, maybe if you're in a conversation with someone on this issue of identity, uh, a way that you could affirm them in something true is, hey, listen, I've, li- I've listened to your story, and, and, and I, I see that you're really searching and seeking um, an identity to call your own. Searching to see the world and yourself in the best way that you can. And we're all doing that. We're all trying to find identity in the world. Affirm. True, right? And then we can get into the yet and the so's and the truth statements. There is ways to affirm what is true. And so while I might not agree uh, with pronoun hospitality fully... I do agree with hospitality as the way forward in these topics. In fact, I want to share with you a story of hospitality, and it is the story of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. I think Pastor Jeff has mentioned this story before, but I think it is just absolutely uh, perfect for us as we're thinking about this. If you don't know Rosaria, uh, Rosaria's uh, Butterfield's story, she was um, a professor of English and women's studies, She was a lesbian woman who was an ally and activist of the LGBTQ agenda and ideology. She would go on to publish um, an article in a newspaper on religion and on politics, to which she received so much hate mail that she would keep two boxes on her desk, one for hate mail and one for her fans. But then she received a letter from a pastor named Ken Smith. And although in the letter Ken disagreed with her on many things, he was respectful and kind. He invited her actually to dinner uh, with his family. And I want to read this uh, verbatim from Rosaria. She says, with the letter, Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches. The Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable, He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. 
Because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. She later then started reading her Bible more and more and more and eventually came to faith in Christ Jesus. And the Lord used Ken and his wife's hospitality that day to change the trajectory of Rosaria's life. Could you imagine if we showed hospitality like Ken and Floyd? We invited people into our homes and sure, disagreed with them, but respected them, befriended them. Instead of sending hate mail through the computer or on social media, what if we were inviting people lovingly into our homes? Being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I think one thing that we need to realize is that there are real people behind these issues. Real people. And we don't just speak to the issues, we are speaking to the person. Behind every issue to debate, there is an image bearer to love. What if we did that? the third thing we need to remember the goal the goal remember the goal so set the foundation engage practically remember the goal uh, some of us uh, really do think that the goal in all of this is to win the argument right to win the cultural arguments we want our points to be heard and understood and be the pro- predominant winner in the social square we want to win the argument that's not actually the goal. Did you know that? The goal is not to win the argument. Now listen, hear me. We need to have the arguments, okay? Amen? We need to have the arguments. We need to stand up for our faith in the public square. We absolutely do. We need to bring what is true, right, and beautiful according to God's word to the culture. So we need to have the arguments because we need to stand up for our faith. We need to have a defense for our faith. We need to defend against uh, the things that are being said in the culture, right? We need to defend against things like emotional hijacking and choice architecture, right? These are manipulation tactics that are being used in culture right now. We need to defend against those. Choice architecture is, um, is, is giving, a, a cert, giving people a certain set of choices that leads them to a desired outcome, right? So let me give you an example of that. Um, do you affirm me? Or do you hate me? You see that that's choice architecture? As if those are the only two choices that exist? Thus propagating that affirmation equals love, and if you don't affirm me, you hate me? When in reality, we all know that that is just completely not true. You can love someone and not totally affirm them, right? I love my wife. She loves me. We do not affirm everything in each other, okay? In fact, some of the most loving things that we do is we challenge each other, right? We challenge one another in our beliefs and our thoughts about things. Sometimes that's the most loving thing that you can do. So that's choice architecture. There's uh, emotional hijacking is the other one. This is where 
uh, there's an effort to stir up your emotions so much that uh, you start to lose rational thinking because your emotions are so high. So there's a phrase that's been thrown around in this area. Uh, Would you rather have a living son or a dead daughter? Right? Have you heard that phrase before? That's emotional hijacking. That's manipulation. Again, as if it's... As if those are the only two choices there, but it's to get a rise in, in emotion. And we need to defend against these manipulations that we see in the culture, and we need to speak truth. We need to stand up for our faith. We need to defend against, uh, we need to defend the vulnerable in our culture. We see this right now happening in our world. Children, as young as three years old, are transitioning, being, being given drugs. No long-term studies on these things. In fact, it is very real that our children in this day and age in America are being experimented on. And that is wickedness. And we need, we must defend the vulnerable in our culture. And we need to understand as well that there are many people in the LGBTQ um, belief that are against that as well. Right? Right? They do not believe that children should transition. They don't. They're against it as well. And so we need to also have some nuance in our thinking and not just lop everyone together into one box and demonize the box and say, you believe this and you think this and you're doing this. We need to take each person as an individual. So we need to have the arguments. But listen to me, the goal isn't winning the argument. Because we've seen some pretty great arguments, haven't we? Very logical arguments, very biblical arguments, very rational arguments, and yet we are still in the place that we are in culture. Why? Because the Bible is is true, right? But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping Things, people's hearts have been darkened. They've been blinded to the truth of God, to the truth of what is good, right, and beautiful. And so we, we can't just use arguments because people's hearts are darkened. Instead, just a couple of verses before this one in Romans is Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Arguments alone will not work, church. We need the good news and the power that comes with it to illuminate the darkened hearts of people. And we need to realize, we must realize that people are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. The enemy is Satan. And he is deceiving their hearts and their minds. And so no matter how good we are at arguments, we can't solve it. So what what our goal then is, not to win the argument, our goal as Christians is to bring them to the same thing that Paul brings them to in Mars, at Mars Hill, the Areopagus, the resurrected Christ. Right? Our goal is that we would speak in such a way and act in such a way and engage in such a way that helps others start to explore Christ. That's our goal. Because listen to me, Jesus is more loving, 
He is more grace-filled. He is more truth-filled. He is more compassionate and hospitable than you ever could be. And the solution to the identity problem is for people to see themselves through the eyes of Jesus, for them to find their identity in him. It is not a problem that you and I can solve. And so our goal isn't to try and win the argument to solve the problem. Our goal is to live and speak and act and engage, to bring people to the point of exploring Jesus, the resurrected Christ, who can solve the problem, who can illuminate the heart. Amen? So let's speak truth and love, church, and let's help others start to explore Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. This is such a confusing topic sometimes in our culture. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the consistency of your word. Lord, thank you for placing value on us. Thank you for giving us an identity that could never be taken. Lord, I pray that you would help us to go out into the culture and help others to start exploring your son, Jesus Christ. That we would be people like Ken and Floyd who open up our house, inviting even those who disagree with us in to have a meal and give them respect and share Jesus with them. Help us to be people who have that kind of radical hospitality. We need your help in this, Lord, because tempers can flare and these issues can frustrate. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us to continue to be patient and kind and loving to other image bearers. And help us, Lord, to find ways in which we can bring to them Jesus. Illuminate their hearts, Lord. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.